Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning. How you guys doing? Okay, about half of you doing okay. Uh, here it is. There's the other half. Uh, well, guys, my name is Drew, and if we haven't had the chance to meet, it's a, it's a joy and an honor to get to be a pastor here at the Rim Church. Uh, man, as Lashad came up, and I, I tell you what, Lashad, thank you so much. I feel like every pastor needs a hype man, and Lashad is, is definitely that. Like, I feel like I feel encouraged and challenged and ready to just preach God's word. But as he read Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, if you are new here, uh, or even if you're not, there's this reading of this, why that one? Well, we've, we've been walking together as a church in a Bible reading pr- plan through the New Testament and the Psalms. And we had this crazy idea that what if we just preach through what it is that we're reading as a church? And so we walk through the last four weeks through the book of Acts and just preach through the book of Acts. And then we started this past week, Romans, and we decided we're just going to spend the next few weeks in Romans leading us up to Easter. And so that's kind of the journey uh, that we're on. And so we've, we take the, the five chapters or so that we're reading in the text of the week, and we preach from that. And usually it comes from the questions that you guys are asking, the things that seem to be standing out, uh, maybe the most confusing pieces. And so today we're diving into Romans chapter 1, and we're going to tackle a pretty heavy passage. And here's what I want you to know up front. The book of Romans is written by uh, the Apostle Paul. And it's a handwritten letter to the house churches in Rome. And there's a problem with the church. There's a lot of division that's going on because you've got Jews and you've got Gentiles. And so there's a lot of conflict uh, on religious preferences, a lot of division of where they should put the emphasis. And so the theme of Romans is the good news. It's the good news of Jesus, the gospel. And many theologians would say that Romans, as a letter, is the greatest theological document ever written. I'll just say that again. That Romans, the 16 chapters that form this letter, is the greatest theological document ever written. And so we're going to spend some time just kind of processing this together. But before we dive into Romans chapter 1, let me just kind of ask you this question. And I don't know if you found yourself in one of these situations where uh, maybe it's a friend or a spouse walks into the room and they say, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which do you want first? Uh, just by show of hands, curious, how many of you guys are, are good news first people? You're like, hit me with the good news. That's what I want first. Okay. Um, so I'm guessing, uh, just by show of hands, how many are bad news first people? Okay, uh, we got a pessimist group uh, this morning. No, I, I'm with you. I want the bad news first. Just hit me with it, and then we'll just kind of end with the cherry on top, and I'm hoping the good news will make the bad news kind of disappear. Well, in many ways, Paul is starting this letter with the bad news. Like He's going to give us horrific news 
before he gets to this unbelievable news. And today, uh, we're going to tackle the bad news. So if this is your first time here, uh, man, when welcome, we really are glad you're here. We're not usually this heavy or this intense. Um, and I know many people may even walk out th this morning and be like, see, that, that's why, that's why we don't do the church thing. Like that was intense, that was dark, that was heavy. And in many ways, if I'm just honest with you, there's gonna be a bit of a cliffhanger. Like we're just gonna hang out in the heaviness and in the bad news. But the truth is this, that Paul, like a loving doctor, is going to come to us and he's got to give us the bad news because if he doesn't give us the bad news, then the good news doesn't make sense. Like, are you tracking with me? Like, it, it's the doctor that comes to you and goes, hey, I, I love you. I love you enough to tell you that the diagnosis isn't good. I love you enough to tell you that yes, you have cancer, but also I got good news, I've got the cure for cancer. And so, so many of us here just, we don't wanna hear the bad news and in doing so, we don't ever hear the good news and we diminish the good news. And so Jesus, or uh, Paul, through the words of Jesus is gonna begin to unpack some horrible news and I'm gonna go ahead and tell, tell it to you just right out of the gate. Here's, here's the bad news that Paul wants all of us to hear this morning. You and I, are spiritually dead, and there is nothing you can do about it. Like, right out of the gate, he holds back no punches, and this is intense. His argument, you and I are dead, and there's absolutely nothing that you and I can do about it. We are in desperate need of a hero, an outside force, stepping into the brokenness and intervening on our behalf. And so, church, my hope as we kind of navigate through this text, that in a very strange way, you would feel loved today. That you would feel just, I mean, the Holy Spirit being this loving doctor and pointing in our heart the areas that don't look like him. The areas of our heart that are issues that are keeping us from experiencing the fullness of life that he offers. Uh, and then in hopes that maybe we can do something about it. So, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to start there. Lashad just read it, but uh, we'll throw it up on the screen for you guys to see it again. And this is what it says. It, it says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. So the very beginning, there are two dimensions that we see here. There's godlessness, which means we have this wrong attitude towards God. It's a corruption of a vertical relationship. And then you have this unrighteousness, or some of your Bibles may say wickedness, which is a corruption of the horizontal relationships. So let me give you an example. So instead of us being loving and humble and truthful, you and I by default tend to be self-centered, proud, and manipulative. And then it goes on to say that God's wrath is against people like this who, watch this, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That these wrong attitudes towards God make us suppress or push down the truth. And suppression is not the same as ignorance. It's not the same as not knowing. Suppression means that the truth is there, but we just 
kept ourselves from acknowledging it. And so I brought a beach ball just as kind of a visual illustration that it's a lot like when you get in the pool or maybe you're at the ocean and you have the beach ball and you, and you push it underneath the water. Now, you can only do that for so long before it, when you let go of it, it pops and shoots out of the water. And this is the imagery that, that you and I, that the truth is right there, the scripture would tell us, but we have suppressed it. We've pushed it underneath the surface and that it, it builds up this tension. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, he says it this way. He says what Paul is, is saying here is that when it comes to the knowledge of God, we know, but sometimes we don't know because we don't want to know. Like, does that sound confusing? Like, are you, are you tracking? Yes? Got it? Let me, let me explain it this way. Near the end of World War II, the first town with a concentration camp that the Allied forces liberated was a town called Odroff, Germany. And the Nazis tried to get rid of all the evidence of the camp. But the Allied soldiers got there before they could do this, and the American GIs witnessed hundreds of dead bodies. And it was the first concentration camp that they had ever witnessed. A few hours later, General Patton arrived and immediately vomits when he witnesses all that's gone, gone on. The next day, Patton brought the mayor of Ordroff and his wife to see it for themselves. Like, and he asked them, like, hey, like you, you knew about this. And, and their response was, we, we didn't know. We, we had no idea that this was going on in our small town, like right underneath our noses. And so the mayor collected all the people, including the mayor and his wife, and they had them bury all the dead bodies. And when they finished kind of saying some words and having a ceremony for them, they found the mayor and his wife. They had hung themselves in their apartment. And there was a note that they had left, and it just said this, we didn't know, but we knew. There was something in us that knew that we had taken this beach ball, we had tried to suppress it, like we know, says Keller, but we don't know because we don't want to know. The truth is too uncomfortable. It would demand us to change. So subconsciously, we just choose not to know. And we'll come back to this concept, so let's, but let's keep going in the scripture. In verse 19, it says this, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. There are two places that we see here in the text that God has revealed himself to you and I. He's revealed it in us, and he's revealed it to us. And we see this to us in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, that is his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made as a result People are without excuse. So here's what the scripture says in Romans 1. Scripture is telling you and I that all of creation, all of it, declares to us the reality of God's power and God's glory. That the creation has God's fingerprints all over it. That the creation that we walk through like day to day speaks to the fact that there is a creator 
And throughout history, philosophers have broken this down in numbers of ways. And I'm, I'm going to kind of geek out uh, for you just a little bit. And some of you, you're going to love this. Uh, some of you, you may tune out, but I encourage you still write notes uh, and throw these out in conversations. You'll sound super smart. There's a couple of philosophical, uh, these are even from non-believing perspectives that I think are really interesting. And one of these is called the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument. And this argument goes all the way back to Aristotle's days. And it's the question of why is there something rather than nothing? And where did the original something come from? If the world is 14 billion years old, and it all started with the Big Bang, the question that scientists wrestle with is, where did the materials that caused the Big Bang come from? That you can't keep going back into infinite regress, into nothingness. Eventually, something has to come from somewhere. Nothingness can't just explode. In his book, God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, who is an outspoken atheist, admits that this is a major problem. He says, Darwin's theory works for biology, but not for cosmology or ultimate origins. And cosmology is still waiting on its Darwin. That we still don't have an answer. In other words, he thinks that while they have explained how life took shape on earth, he admits that they still have no idea where life itself came from. And he says, we need a theory as to why anything exists. Because it is self-evident that nothing plus nobody can't equal everything. This is the cosmological argument. Um, then there's what philosophers call the teleological argument for God. Once again, ge geeking out a little bit. Uh, are you kinda, is this kind of cool or just like, ugh, this feels like we're in science class. Okay, cool, okay, just making sure. Uh, you're being very quiet. And uh, I can't tell. So, Lashad, let me know if, it if it's working, okay? So the teleological argument, telos means purpose. So not only do we have a question of why there is something rather than nothing, but creation appears to be very finely tuned for a purpose and for a reason. The more we learn about this, the more amazing it becomes. Scientists say that life on earth depends on multiple factors that are so precise that if off by even a little hair, life could not exist. They call it the Goldilocks principle, that things are just right for human life. For example, once again, these are just for fun. The makeup of our universe, if you think about it, uh, some of those, the levels, like if you think about our hydrogen, our carbon dioxide, like all these levels that make up our, our atmosphere, like they're, they're so precise that if oxygen dropped by even just a few percent, that we would all suffocate. If it rose, the planet would erupt into a giant fireball and we would all die. Or, this is really interesting, I learned this this week, the water molecule uh, is the only one uh, that when solid, it becomes like less dense than its liquid form, which means that when it freezes, it floats. Okay, you're like, yeah, yeah, cool. We've all have a glass of water. We've seen the water float. Why is that important? If ice did not float, it would sink to the bottom of the ocean 
and the whole ocean would eventually freeze from the bottom up and we would all die. Or the distance of the earth from the sun, if it were just 2% closer to the sun, the sun would be so hot water couldn't exist and we'd all die. 2% away and we'd freeze to death. Then there's the tilt of the earth, which is an ideal 23.5 degrees, which we've learned is the perfect for temperature and tides and such. And you've probably never thought about this, but if it wasn't tilted, then temperatures would be so extreme, we would all die. One more for fun. I learned that if Jupiter wasn't the size that it is, and in the exact place of orbit that it is, astronomers predict that there would be 10,000 more like, like 10 times the number of asteroids striking here on Earth. And you guessed it, we'd all die. <laughs> so when you put away the telescopes and you pull out microscopes, we find the same complexities in the cell and at the atomic level. That even the most basic DNA strands are incredibly complex, enough so that Francis Collin, head of the Human Genome Project, says this, he said, how could a cosmic accident ever result in something of this digital elegance as a DNA strand? He said, it's like an explosion in an ink factory could somehow inadvertently produce the collected works of Shakespeare. He goes, it's impossible. One scientist said the greatest miracle of all time without any close second is the existence of life on our planet. And maybe, real talk, maybe you're here and you're like, well, Drew, I don't know how I feel about all this. I really think maybe we just got lucky. Like all of this is just lucky in a universe as big as ours and our planet. It was bound to exist somewhere. And maybe we just happened to be on that planet. But scientists say, once again, these are non-believers, non-Christian scientists say that the odds of a planet like Earth existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. They said it's like tossing a coin like in the air, flipping it into the air and having it come up on heads, like doing this every single second and it landing on heads for the next 10 billion years. God's fingerprints are all over creation. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. God has not only shown it to us, Paul says that he's revealed it in us, that there are things in our hearts that tell us that we're not just accidental biology, like our longing for love and meaning and eternity. The atheist philosopher Albert Camus said that, that we long for love without parting, but that a universe without God gives us only the conscious certainty of death without hope. Womp, womp, womp. Uh, he said this is the absurdity of life. He said that life was one long, tragic, absurd comedy. And we seek things from life that simply can't, we cannot provide. Or... Atheist turned believer C.S. Lewis had a different approach, and he said it this way, and I quote, A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such thing as food. 
A duckling wants to swim, and there's such thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such thing as sex. And then he said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. To you, church, like which one lines up with your heart? Which one makes the most logical sense that our longings for meaning and justice and eternity are just a cruel accidental joke or that they all whisper that we were created for something more? Another dimension of this is what philosophers call the moral argument. It's the very fact that we have moral feelings suggest that there's a presence of a divine lawgiver. This week, um, Austin and I flew to uh, Dallas. I was speaking at an event, and we get on the Southwest plane, and we sit down, and immediately, uh, you don't have to look long before you realize there's two straps that are in the seat. And uh, there's a little brochure in the seat pocket in front of me that shows me how to connect these two. And then there's a lit up icon that says that these two straps will go together to form a seat belt. And there's even a demonstration by a young lady that works for Southwest showing us how to put this on. And the thing is this, is that everything points to the fact that someone at some time is going to ask me about that seat belt. And why or why not I haven't put it on. And in the same way, Feelings of guilt and moral obligation, our desire for justice, point to a divine lawgiver to whom we will give an account. And I don't have time to completely break this down, but feelings of guilt and moral obligation are common to all people in all cultures. But think about this. It's only in humans. And no other animal in animal kingdom. Like, think, just go with me. If you go on a trek in the jungle or some rainforest, and all of a sudden a poisonous snake bites you uh, and kills you, it feels zero remorse or guilt for killing you and eating you. A snake doesn't have a moral compass, yet we do. The moral argument states that there seems to be some divine lawgiver who has implanted in our hearts the sense of right and truth and love. And these philosophical, philosophical arguments back scripture that what may be known about God is evident to us and in us, but we suppress that truth. We know, but we didn't know because we don't want to know. And then he goes on in verse 21 and he says, For they knew God, and they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. What this is saying is, although all of creation points to the fact that there is a God, that there is a creator, we didn't want him to be God. Every one of us in this room, at some point in our life, by our actions, have looked at God and said, yeah, yeah, something in me tells me that there's a God out there, but I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. Because we, we want to be in control. We want to make the rules. We want to take God's glory for ourselves is what the scripture says. And we didn't show him gratitude. That we didn't acknowledge that our talents, our brains, our aptitudes, and every bit of our energy was a gift from God. Think about this. 
How much people in San Antonio, we have this like self-made man attitude that I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I worked hard enough. I don't get in my way. And not a single one of us has acknowledged that the fact that our circumstances, the year in which you were born, the family into which you were born in, the resources that you were given, that you, you had nothing to do with that. That God alone gives us heartbeat, gives us life, gives us these aptitudes, but we, we take credit for those because we want to be in the center of our story. We want to make the rules. We believe, we truly do believe that we know better than God. Our way is better. And so, verse 21 says that our thinking became worthless and our senseless hearts were darkened. We claiming to be wise, they became fools. That humanity's suppression of truth, Paul explains, it manifests itself in two forms, in a religious way and an irreligious way. That we see God and we don't really want him to be in control, and so we have these one or two responses. And the first is we have this irreligious suppression. Think like atheism or being agnostic. Irreligious suppression pushes the beach ball down and then subconsciously pretends like it doesn't exist and then we believe that there is no God. We cover our eyes, we put our fingers in our ears and we pretend that we don't see him. Now listen, and some of you, this may be your story in this room. I am not saying that there are not people who are genuinely convinced that they are atheists. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that based upon the scripture, based upon God's word in Romans 1, that atheism is driven by a subconscious desire not to know. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know, so we push the beach ball down. Parents, let me maybe paint this picture for you. Imagine uh, being a parent, maybe who has a son, and as a parent, you send your son off to like the best school. And one day, a teacher tells you as a parent that there's pretty good evidence that your son routinely cheats and steals from other kids. But as parents often do, uh, you work out a counter theory about how, well, I bet the teachers are just apt to get my kid. He's probably, you know, not fitting in. This, and you just, you come up with this counter theory that explains away all the evidence. And you, the teachers in the school, they have it out for them. And so you pull them out of the school. Six months later, the same situation happens at a new school. And every school thereafter, you see in the heart, the parent knows the truth. But in their mind, they won't admit it to themselves because their son has become their savior and their joy and they cannot entertain the theory that maybe it's on them. They know, but they don't know because they don't wanna know. And the same thing happens with us and God. The Bible tells us that everyone in our heart, we know the truth, but we don't want to admit it to ourselves. So some of us convince ourselves that there is no God. We don't like the thought of an all-powerful ruling God, so we suppress the truth. Which is why a lot of the greatest atheist intellectuals of the last hundred years who became Christians, people like T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, A.N. Wilson, all have said in some form or fashion that what brought me to faith 
was not some new argument or evidence. I just admitted to myself that I always knew there was a God. That it wasn't some new evidence, some book that was written, some scientific proof that was discovered. It was just admitting that I always knew. That the beach ball kept trying to come to the surface. And eventually I just let it. The other way our suppression of truth manifested itself was in idolatry or religious suppression. Verse 23, it says, And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So you've got irreligious suppression and you've got religious suppression, which means that we take the object of our worship and we conform it into something that we can control. All the false gods that humanity has ever worshipped through like history all have one thing in common. They exist to serve us. They exist to serve us. Like we, we like to think that we're the ones that are in the center of our universe, that everything revolves around us. We think in many ways that we can fix ourselves. I mean, so yeah, we, we worship, but I want you to think about this. You, immediately, I think when we say words like idolatry in the church, we think about like golden calves and we think about idols, maybe like uh, in different parts of the world. But church, even, even in our community, there, there are false idols in our lives that we worship. And we might not physically bow down, but I can tell you right now, where a majority of your time goes is where a majority of your worship goes. Where a majority of your talents are spent is where your worship goes. Where your treasure and where you spend your money is where your worship goes. So we can come into this place and we can sing songs and we can say that our worship is all about Jesus. But listen, we can look at our calendars and our checkbooks and say what we really worship. Like what we're really, listen, this is why as a church that we, we, we give opportunities to even give. Not because we're after your money, but because Jesus is after your heart. And so we give space for us to worship through even our giving. Through, through our talents, through, through how we spend our time. Like in this discipleship journey that we've been on in 2021, we're trying to figure out like, man, we know that Jesus wants all of your heart, not just the portion that you want to give him. He deserves all of it. Yeah. And so religion, for many of us, if you boil it down, is just how do we perform in order to fix ourselves? What boxes do I need to check off? You know why, why we love religion so much? Because it makes us feel good about ourselves at the end of the day. What religion says is, God, I don't really need you to fix me. I can fix myself. I'll come to enough church services. I'll read the Bible enough. I'll pray enough. I'll do, I'll do, I'll do, I'll do. And eventually I'll clean myself up. And I can get this on my own and I don't really need you. And it's incredibly dangerous because our city has a spirit of religion about it. We love to perform in order to fix ourselves. We see this even in our prayers. 
God, I, 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 I want this. I, I, I need this. Fix this the way I want. And if you don't listen, I'm going to get mad at you and just refuse to believe that you exist. But the most basic truth of creation is that we were created for God and for his glory. He is at the center, not us. We exist to serve him, not the other way around. But we wanted to be God, and we wanted him to serve us like he was some divine butler or cosmic genie in the sky. And we're so quick to reimagine him in our own image. Where we see this often, and I've heard even some of you say this, we use language like, man, my God would never do X, Y, or Z. Or we'll say, I just couldn't serve a God who would allow people to go to hell. My God would never tell me not to do this or ask me to do this. This language communicates that you've created a God in your own image. And if you don't like a part of him, you just shift it and change it. That's what the scripture is pointing to. That we became futile. That we exchanged the truth for a lie. Listen, real talk. I love you enough to tell you that you don't get to decide who God is. The only one who gets to decide is God. And if he tells us who he is and we don't like that, we don't get to write that part off. We don't get to, no, 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 thank you. I, I would do it better. I think I've got a better image in my mind of who God should be. How arrogant of us. And we begin to just play straight into the scripture and what Paul warns us about. That God showed it to us, he revealed it in us, but we suppress the knowledge of this all-ruling, all-sovereign God because we didn't want it to be true. That's the shape of all of our hearts. And for that reason, every one of us stand condemned. Every one of us stand guilty and fallen before a holy God. In verse 24 he goes on to say, therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. And we don't have time to unpack the verses that follow because once again, the rest of Romans 1 just gets darker. But I will just encourage you as you read the scripture, don't try to explain it away. Because sometimes what Jesus says is what he means. And so that's a, another sermon for another day. And we don't have time to get into it. But let me at least introduce this concept. God's judgment is just because he just gives us what we want. That's what delivered us over means. That God is just stepping back and giving you exactly what you wanted. Like, think about it this way. Let's say the earth rebels against the sun and says, hey, I'm sick and tired of you being the center of my universe. Uh, all, like, all I do is just spin around you, 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 and I'm gonna put myself at the center. Well, the sun is 30,000 times bigger than the earth, and because of that, the gravitational capacity to keep everything in orbit, like, it, it can do that. The earth cannot. So if the earth rebels and says, from now on, I'll, I'll be at the center, the sun might say, okay, have at it. 
And the solar system would begin to unravel, not because the sun did something to the earth, but because it simply let the earth have its wish. And that's essentially what God did with us. He let us have our way. And then we set out to justify and license sin. Even in the situations where brokenness is really, really obvious, we come up with ways to ignore it or justify it or even institutionalize it. Or, listen, and you don't have to have watched the news very long this past week. Hey, church, we, we're, we're on the same page, right? Like, we, we see that the world is broken, that it's, it's not as it should be. And, and it doesn't take, listen, the killing of eight innocent women in Atlanta for us to kind of open up our eyes and go, yeah, yeah, it's jacked up. Which just as a side note, real quick, this is not a political statement, so do not send me an email. This is just scriptural. That we believe, and you can, you can say, well, the facts aren't completely out. Here's what we, we're going to call sin, sin. And what happened in Atlanta is okay. What happened down the street at Noodle Tree with vandalization of these Asian Americans and their restaurant, like, not okay. Not okay that every man and woman, regardless of their background, their culture, or the color of their skin, are created in the image of God. And church, we will say this and not apologize it. Any form of racism is a spit in the face of God. What it says is, God, what you created here was a mistake. I know better. You don't know what you're doing. That because of this person's skin tone, this one's better than this one. It's a blatant spit in the face of God and what he created and what he calls good. And so we will not be a church that is silent or sits on the sidelines, but we will raise our voice and we'll say, hey, that's not okay and not on our watch. And we'll do whatever we can to support our Asian, American, or Pacific Islander brothers and sisters who are facing racism. Once again, not in the notes, but I just need you to hear me say that. Now, church, I, I don't want to end on too much despair. You're going to walk out today and be like, oh, how was church today? And you're like, well, we heard a lecture on how we're all dead and we deserve it. Uh, so let, let, me kind of, let me kind of wrap it up with this, a little bit of maybe hope. Um, and this is it, like, in this series that we're calling Death Defeated, we first got to wrap our mind around the bad news. Because if you don't realize you have cancer, then the cure is just not that big of a deal. But when you realize that you're dead and there's nothing you can do about it, then what Jesus does in a few weeks on Easter is unbelievable. The Russian cosmonaut, the, the, cosmonaut, the first one that entered into space, when he got there, famously said, my atheism has been confirmed. I went to space, looked around, and I didn't see any God. Shortly after that, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay on creation, and he said this. He said, if there is a God who created everything, God would not relate to us the way a person who lives upstairs relates to a person who lives downstairs, where you could just pop your head up and just see if they're there. He said, God would relate to us the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Hamlet's never going to find out anything about Shakespeare by going backstage. The only way that Hamlet knows Shakespeare 
is if Shakespeare chooses to write information about himself into the play. The gospel goes a step further than this. When God chooses to insert himself into the creation. The theme verse of all of Romans, but especially Romans 1, is verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The story that is being written is this, and I'll say it very, very quickly. That God created every single one of us. He created us to know him, to love him, to walk with him in the cool of the day of the garden. To be fully known and fully loved. The scripture would tell us that we make it three chapters into the book before we totally screw it all up. That at some point Adam and Eve, along with us, that we looked at God and we said, hey, yeah, thank you, but no thanks. Like, I don't want you to be the captain. I don't want you to sit on the throne. So move over. And in that moment, treason, like we committed treason and sin entered the world. It fractured it. If you go on in Romans, it says through Adam, one sin, it entered into him. And now it's in all of us. It's a cancer. It's a plague that's killing all of us. And you're born with it. And if you're like, ah, I don't know if I'm buying it, Drew. Well, here's the deal. Listen, as a father of a two-year-old, no one taught Tilly to be selfish or to bite or to hit when she doesn't get her way or to be manipulative. But it's in her. And there's moments where I step back and like, man, she's evil. (laughs) And she didn't learn a single bit of that from watching mom or dad. But that cancer, that sin, it is in her heart. She was born with it. All of us were born with a desire to be self-sovereign, to be in control. The entire Old Testament, here's the good news, is one giant promise that even in your rebellion and your treason, God loves you too much to leave you there. And it's one giant promise that one day he's sending a hero. One day he's inserting himself into the story. And he's going to fix all that's broken. And so when you turn the pages from Malachi into Matthew, we see that the hero shows up. But it's not what anyone expected because the hero is actually God himself. That God would be willing to leave his throne room, wrap himself in human flesh, and then move into our trailer park teaching us what it means to be fully human. He lived the life that we could not live, and then he died on the cross that we deserve. That was our death penalty for our treason. And then placed into the tomb, three days later, he walks out of the grave, proving that he has the power over sin and death. And all who call upon the name of Jesus. Don't miss this, church. All who call upon the name of Jesus, all who push all in, like my life is yours. Like I'm going to step off the throne room. Like I don't want to be captain. You be the king. You be in charge. That's what it means for him to be Lord, him to be the master. You call the shots. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to let you be in the center. Anyone who's willing to say yes to what Jesus does on the cross, the scripture says that something radical happens. That we go from being enemies of God to being adopted into the family. 
we go from being spiritually dead to life and life to the fullest. Oh, church, the gospel is not that Jesus came to take bad people and turn them into good people. The gospel is that Jesus came to take dead people and bring them back to life. And that's why he had to die. And that's why he rose from the grave. Because that shows that he has the receipts and that it's been paid in full. But God, in many ways, is a gentleman. And church, he will give you exactly what it is that you want. And if you want a life suppressing the truth, because it's yours. Just in real quick, this is once again a side note. You know the greatest argument, I think when people really wrestle with like, why would God send people to hell? And the truth is, is that God is just simply giving people what they want. By your life, by the way we live, ultimately looking at God and going, God, I don't want you to be king. I want to be in control. In heaven, it's all about Jesus. You realize that about it. It's not about your gold streets. It's not about your mansion. It's not about you playing golf every day. It's not about all your comforts. It is constantly about Jesus. And so, let me like just ask you, like, do you, do you want this? Like, where do you find yourself, church? Like, if you're in this room and you don't know him, then maybe your first response is to say, Jesus, I, I, we've got a lot to figure out. I, I want to say yes to you. And, and maybe you come find me or Austin or Lashad or, or any one of our staff members or I see Carmel and Becca like hanging out in the lobby. Like, go find someone and go, hey, just would you introduce me to Jesus? Or if you came with somebody who knows and loves Jesus, you just go, hey, would you, let's go grab lunch and you tell me about him. But church, if you know and you love Jesus, then what is it that you're holding back? What is it that you're suppressing? Would you experience the grace that he offers and then would it allow you to live in grace and extend grace to the world in which you live? Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. We give you this space, we give you this time, and we just ask you to continue to speak to our hearts. God, it's a heavy passage, and I pray that your people walk away inspired, encouraged, and in a weird way, loved by you. But you gotta speak. The church, I wanna give you, it's custom, just 120 seconds for you to just ask yourself two questions. Based upon God's word, what is he saying to you today? And then what are you gonna do about it? And then we'll worship. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.